If you have a Bible, open it up to Galatians. If you don't have one but want to follow along, we'll be on page 972. There are some Bibles kind of spread around under the chairs there. If you don't have one at home, even just keep that. We have extras of those for you. This series in Galatians we're calling Centered. And what we're trying to learn or relearn, as the case may be, is that uh, the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is, is our compass point. It's what directs us in life when everything else washes away uh, through trials, through difficulty, through sadness, through whatever it may be. The gospel is that north star for us. That's what's going to give us direction. It's what's going to show us which way to go from day to day. We're calling it this morning as we move into verses 6 through 10, gospel-centered, gospel-centered, which is a phrase, if, if you're kind of a blog reader or someone that listens to other sermons online, you're probably familiar with this term among Bible-believing Jesus-proclaiming churches. It's almost become an overused term, so I want to define what that means uh, when we use the word, when we say gospel-centered. What we mean is that the gospel is not just your entry into a hope of heaven, but it's also what transforms you day to day. So that's really what we mean by gospel-centered. The way Tim Keller expresses it is that the gospel is not just the ABCs of the Christian faith, but the gospel is the A to Z of the Christian faith. So the gospel is everything for us. It's what grows us. It's not that you meet Jesus through the gospel. Jesus gave himself for you, died on the cross for your sins, great you're in, and then now we've got another system for you now. It's it's the same thing all along. Every day is the gospel. Entrusting yourself every day to him. And so that's what we mean when we say gospel-centered. The text this morning is, uh, it's a fiery passage. Um, So I just kind of want to tell you, I'm, I'm typically kind of a laid-back guy, if you know me, I'm pretty friendly, pretty laid-back. Um, we've got an angry text this morning, and so some of that's probably going to come out through me as I'm trying to speak the words of the text. Um, and what I would say is that we feel like Paul here is angry about really the only thing worth getting really angry about. It's that central, it's that important. It, this, is, this is the one thing that, the way I've said it in the past, is this is the one thing that gets Paul cussing mad, okay? Um, I don't cuss a lot, if you know me well, you can back me up, right? Uh, but this is an area where it's going to come out. We're going to say some bad words. If your kids are in here, I apologize, kids. Don't repeat these words, um, but it's, it's in the text. So let's read it. You won't hear them until I translate it later. But uh, So verses 6 through 10. Paul says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. So there's the cussing. Let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Let me pray for us and ask God to teach us uh, this morning from the text. God, we pray that you would help us this morning. Um, I pray that you would give us uh, receptive hearts, uh, ears to hear what you're saying. Um, God, you know in our culture, uh, we often shy away from harsh words. So this, this can be hard for us to hear. We 
We pray, Lord, that you would teach us what it means, what you have to say, why this is important, and we pray that you would give us hope in Jesus. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, all of you who love someone deeply, uh, especially if you're parents, you know what it is to be upset. You know what it is to be upset. And you know what it is to be upset for righteous reasons. Now, if you're an angry person uh, and you struggle with that, get help. I'm not excusing you right now, okay? But there's a right sense in which if you see your child or someone you love running into traffic, you are going to freak out and you're going to scream and you're going to tell them to stop and you're going to get agitated and you're going to get upset. And that's what Paul is doing here. I want you to understand, Paul is saying people he loves are running out into a busy street and so he's going to scream his head off and say, stop. Why would you do that? He's going to get upset about this. So again, I don't want to excuse your anger problem if you've got an anger problem, but there are times when you should get upset. When, when life is on the line, when there's something that really matters and it's worth fighting over and it's worth getting upset over and it's worth your adrenaline kicking in and it's worth your heart beating faster. And that's where Paul is here with this text. He says, this is, I'm going to fight over this. This is a big deal. This is the point of everything. This is the good news. The whole world is broken and Jesus came to fix it. And you, you trusted that. You got excited about that when we talked about it. When I came and visited these churches in Galatia, Paul's saying, and, and now you're turning and you're, you're turning to some other fix. You're turning to some other solution, but Jesus is the only solution. And so he's going to get agitated. And so I just, I want you to know if, if you're the person where this is, uh, this is getting under skin, this is hard for you, this is upsetting to you, I want you to know I'm, I'm that kind of person too, right? Like if you know me well, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a don't get upset about things kind of guy. But the scriptures, the, the gospel constrains us to get upset about what really matters. And that's where Paul is here. He's saying this is, this is what really matters. The way he describes it in 1 Corinthians 15 is he said this gospel is of first importance. It's primary. This gospel, this good news, so the gospel literally means the message, the good message, the good news of Jesus who came for us, who died in our place and who rose from the dead. So he takes our sin upon himself on the cross and he gives us his resurrection life. That's the gospel. So go memorize 1 Corinthians 15. Go, go read through that. He says it's not only by which you are saved, but it's by which you stand, right? So when I defined earlier what gospel-centered means, that's what it means. It means not only are you saved by it, we have hope of heaven and relief for our sins, forgiveness for our sins, but also we stand. It means that's how I get up in the morning. That's how I make it another day. And so he says this, this is that important. And the first thing that he says about this gospel is that it's personal. It's very personal. Now, if, if you've been in Bible teaching churches long, we, we emphasize that you should know the scriptures, that you should understand doctrine, that the truth matters, and we're going to teach you. We're not going to stop being a Bible teaching church, but you need to understand that, that underneath and through all of that is the gospel is not just propositions and abstract ideas. It is a person. The gospel is Jesus himself, and so that's where Paul's going to hit first. He's going to say, it's not just a matter of you getting the answer wrong on the test, but you're deserting a person who loves you and came after you and died for you and is pursuing you. And so he's going to say, it's a personal issue. Look at verses 6 and 7. Paul says, 
I'm astonished. I'm astonished. That's just a word for amazed. His mind is blown. He's upset. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. So he says, you're, you're deserting this person. You're quickly turning from this person, him who called you in the grace of Christ. This person, God himself has called you, has invited you into relationship with himself through Christ. And when you're turning from the gospel, you're turning from him. You're turning from a person who loves you, who wants to be in relationship with you. And what's interesting is he says you're turning so quickly. That word quickly is the same word used in the Greek Old Testament, the Greek translation of Exodus. So Exodus is the story of God saving a people for, for himself, right? It's the, the reflection. It's the mirror of what we know to be true in Jesus. It's kind of the, the first round of that that uh, foreshadows what Jesus was going to accomplish. God comes to a people that are enslaved and says, I'm going to rescue you and make you a people for myself. I'm going to save you by grace and then ask you to follow me in obedience. So God does that in the Exodus. He saves his people out of slavery in Egypt. And then in Exodus chapter 32, we're told that they quickly turned. They quickly turned. It says this in Exodus 32, 1, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, uh, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. So, so hear this. In verse 1, when the people saw that Moses delayed, they started worshiping other gods. So I want you to understand that that's the same pressure that we feel too. We've come to find some hope in Jesus and we're like, okay, this is it. This is a story that makes sense of the whole world, right? Creation is uh, made beautiful, yet it's fallen. It, it makes sense of everything. I, I'm in. I'm with Jesus. Then there's a delay. You, you come to trust in him, but... But things aren't fixed yet. You're, you get cancer. Or your child dies. Or your spouse betrays you. And you're thinking, well, where is he? What's going on? There's a delay. And what happened to the people of Israel is there was this delay. They were rescued, but then they're like, well, I don't know, I don't know what's next. And what do we do now? And they quickly fell away. He says in um, verse 8, they have turned aside quickly out of the way I commanded them. That's what God said about them. John Stott says that this word uh, in quickly deserting him who called you, this word deserting, uh, is the same word that they would use in war. You know, someone switched sides, committed treason, was a deserter. Uh, many of you are in the military. I know that would, that would grab hold of you if someone you fought side by side with then turned on you. And that's what Paul is saying is taking place here. Just historically, there's uh, Benedict Arnold. He's a famous figure from history who was known as a, a traitor or as a deserter. Someone who changed sides, uh, changed teams midstream. Paul's saying that's what's happening. When you say, yeah, I'm in with Jesus. Oh, wait, uh, Jesus is cool, but let me, let me go ahead and take on the, tribes, the, the tribal markers of this other group because maybe that'll help me a little more than just Jesus. Jesus apparently is not enough. I need these other things to add to Jesus. Let me grab those things. Paul says that's, that's deserting a person. That's turning from this person, the God of the universe who's made a covenant with you, who's come after you. He says, I'm astonished you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. And then he says in verse 7, 
not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So Paul's saying you're turning from this gospel, Jesus died and resurrected for you. You're turning from that and you're going to other things because you're thinking, wow, there's a delay and life's not happy and I really need, I need some other things to fix me to make life better. So maybe Jesus is not enough. And he says when that turn happens, you're deserting a person. You're turning aside from him, not just ideas, not just truths about him, but him. And he says in that turning process, you're turning to something that's not even a gospel, right? He says not that there really is another one, like language starts to run out here. It's not really a gospel because gospel means good news. And so if you're turning from the savior of your soul who loves you uh, to a parasite that wants to destroy you, that's not good, right? And this comes back to the analogy of if you see a kid running out into the street, I hope you would freak out. I hope you would get upset and, and, and not go, well, it's good for them, right? It's, it's what they want. It's, it's their thing. Who am I to say? I don't want to be judgmental. No, there's a bus coming 40 miles an hour down the street. You need to tell them to stop. You need to scream, stop. And that's what's happening, Paul. He says, it's not good news, it's, it's bad news. It's not really a gospel when you turn to another one. He says, when they distort these troublers, these agitators, common word used for false teachers, for those who come in and trouble the peace of God's people and say there's another way, Jesus is not enough. You need to have Jesus plus this style of worship. You need to have Jesus plus um, these practices. You need to have Jesus plus these tribal Boundary markers. You need to look like this group. You need to look like that group. You need to do these things. You need to go through these motions because Jesus really isn't enough. It, it's personal. It's a person. If you, see, if you say Jesus plus something else, it's not Jesus anymore. It's Jesus plus something else. Paul says, no, it's just Jesus. It's just Jesus. It's just the person of Jesus. In John 6, Jesus says some really upsetting things to a crowd you know, I've talked to you before about how Jesus doesn't always obey the principles of church growth. You know, we, we try to obey some of those principles like, uh, you know, we have a roof and climate control and padded seats, you know, stuff like that. We try, we try to make the place as inviting as possible. Um, but then sometimes you step over this line where, where you say things that people don't like. And Jesus had a bad habit of doing that. Uh, Jesus uh, said, you have to eat my body and drink my blood if you want to come to know God. And that was kind of a deal breaker for a lot of people. If you can imagine, if I were to say that, you'd, you'd be gone, right? And so a bunch of people left. And, and in John chapter 6, Jesus is talking about it with his disciples. And he says, well, this is why I told you no one can come to me unless it's granted to him by the Father. He's saying it's, it's hard. The Father has to drag people to Jesus for people to follow Jesus. There's got to be something supernaturally happening in their lives. Many of the disciples turned back and no longer wanted to walk with him, it says at this point. And Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? So Jesus is working with this team. I, I tend to say, team, please stay with me, right? That's how I tend to work with my team. Uh, but Jesus says, all right, you want to leave? You want to hit the road? Everybody else left. You want to leave too? And, and Peter says this. It's fascinating. I love, this is one of my favorite passages of scripture. Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Lord, to whom shall we go? 
you have the words of eternal life, and we've believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So what I want you to hear is that we can have the faith of Peter, as he has it here, who, you know, left and right is rebuking Jesus and disagreeing with him and not understanding him and struggling with what Jesus is doing, but saying, Jesus, I don't have anywhere else to go. You're it. You're my only option. Faith in in Jesus is not this kind of absolute certainty where you've got everything figured out. It's saying, Jesus is it. And yeah, I'm struggling because my my friends are getting divorced and I'm dying and I have this disease and I have this going on and this is breaking down. But Jesus is my only hope. He's it. I'm not going to leave him and go to some other option. Now, that's what Peter is saying. He's saying, you're, you're it, Jesus. I don't have anywhere else to go. And what, what I want to challenge you to is, uh, have you had that kind of personal experience with this personal God who's personally come to pursue you? I, I don't want to turn this into some sort of I dictate the proper experience, right? Because then we're moving the bar away from Jesus again. But what I want you to understand is that you have to have at some level a personal understanding, experience, surrender to Jesus, who loves you. So I'm not going to dictate like uh, how long you have to cry over it, or you know what's that? What is that going to look like? How, how is that experience shaped? But what I want you to to feel the weight of is is are you like Peter saying, yes, Jesus? There's a part of me that wants to go the other way, but there's nowhere else to go. You're it. I have nowhere else to go, Jesus. I have nowhere else to go. He says. Do you want to go away as well? Jesus is asking us, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So when we're tempted to to add something else on top of Jesus, remember, he's asking you, you, do you want to leave or do you want to follow me? He's asking all of us that, and we have to have that personal realization that he's he's our only choice he's our only hope the the next thing that paul starts to get into and and he's really kind of touched on this already in verse seven but in verses eight and nine this gospel is unchangeable so it's not just abstract truth it's a person but it is also a propositional truth there are facts and those facts can't be changed we are sinners God created the world to to be perfect for us to reflect God's image. And the story is in Genesis that we turned from him and we said we'd rather be our own gods. We'd rather live life in disobedience without God than obedience with God. And in that turn, we've fractured the world and that's what sin is. Sin is saying, I'd rather have the poison than live life uh, with God. And we've all done that. And we all do it in different ways. And one of the twisted parts of it is we think our way is always the best, right? We're like, well, that other guy's really bad. But my sin, it's no big deal. It's fine, right? The, the biblical story is we're all sinners. We're all fallen short of the glory of God. We're all broken. And the solution is Jesus. The solution is a God who through every covenant he made with every Bible here in the Old Testament was saying, I'm coming after you. I'm coming after you. I'm coming after you. And Jesus is the fulfillment, the fruit, the climax of all of those stories. And he comes after us and he takes the wrath of God on the cross. He absorbs our sin. 
He becomes our substitute and he dies, but he rises from the dead, proving that he's beat death. So he gives us that resurrection power. He gives us that resurrection life so we can be vindicated along with him. We can be vindicated in his vindication, in his conquering of death. And so those facts can't be changed. And what Paul is saying is if someone else comes along and tells another story, don't listen to them. The story can't be changed. So the facts are important. If you desert the facts, you're deserting the person. So don't miss that he's a person, but also don't miss that there are facts that we want you to know. Don't miss that uh, there is doctrine, there is truth. We'll continue to teach those truths here. He says in verse 8 and 9, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. Um, so that's the, the curse word, right? Um, when we say cuss, I don't know if you knew this, cuss is like a short way of saying curse, right? So when we teach our kids not to say curse words, we're encouraging our kids not to curse people. It's just not a good habit, right? Um, but as I said, there's, there's one thing that makes Paul cussing mad, and that's the changing or the abandoning of the gospel. That's the abandoning of this unchangeable message of Jesus for us. It's going for something different. And that's what gets Paul cussing, right? So kids, if there are kids here, you shouldn't cuss. Bad habit, okay? But this is the one place where it's appropriate. The, the word he uses here is let them be accursed. In Greek, it's uh, anathema, which uh, we say in English, anathema. So you've probably heard that if you've studied church history at all, uh, you know, different denominations, we like to throw out anathemas on other denominations. Uh, if they worship in a place with green carpet, let them be accursed. And, you know, there's this kind of anathema thing that's thrown out, and I, I'm silly there, but uh, sadly, often it's over the wrong things. But here's Paul pointing out the right thing uh, to bring down condemnation. There's only one thing that really deserves it, and that's the gospel itself. That's the life and death situation. That's the children running into the street and we stop them and say, no, you're, you're running headlong towards destruction. And that's what Paul is saying here. So my translation, again, I, I, don't, I don't get to say this every week, but I get to this week because I'm translating here as he's saying, let them go to hell, right? Or let them be damned. That, that's what he's saying here. Um, I try not to say that all the time, but, but that's what this means. And then he repeats it. Verse 9, as we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So Paul wants to make sure that you realize he's not just flying off the handle. Sometimes I make uh, crazy pronouncements because sometimes I'm a verbal processor, so I'm thinking out loud, right? And say I'm working with the ministry team here at the church and I say something and, and they have to say, did, did you really mean that? You know, because if you said this and this, and that's going to cause this problem, and, and I have to back down, right? I've said something without thinking. Any of you ever do that? You don't have to raise your hand. I know some of you do. Um, and, and so Paul is making sure that we understand that he's not being a hothead, and he repeats it coldly and clearly and says, let me say this again. It's this serious. If anyone preaches any other gospel, let them be damned. Let them go to hell. Throughout the New Testament, we are taught to turn the other cheek and to love people, right? We're taught to echo what Jesus and John the Baptist said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The doors are open. It's like a big wedding party. Come on in. 
and God is inviting the, all the outcasts and, and all the losers and all of us that couldn't get in the door. He's saying, come on in. So there's this incredible invitational, hospitable feel from the New Testament. And we work hard to carry that kind of culture here, that you would feel welcome to come to Jesus despite the reality that we are all condemned sinners. That Jesus took our place to take care of that sin so we could come through the door. We could come into him. We can run to the throne of grace. But what you'll see is the flip side of that is the one thing where that uh, invitation is not, that hospitable feel is not so present is, is with false teachers. And it's consistent throughout the New Testament. You'll see this habit where Jesus, when he's talking to sinners, he's very patient and asks probing questions, but he's very kind and understanding and thoughtful. And he, there's rebuke, there's challenge, but, but there's this graciousness there. And you see it with others kind of in the middle who are already committed to Jesus and following him but are confused. You see him rebuking them like a loving father, but still gracious and patient and teaching and explaining. And then there's this other category of people who are religious, who are hypocrites, is what Jesus says, who are false teachers. And he's going to be very harsh with them. He's going to get in their face. He's going to oppose them openly. And you, you see that change in posture and how Jesus faces down those who are religious hypocrites, those who are false teachers, those who are saying, look at me, I've got it all together. I don't need Jesus' help because I'm so awesome myself. I can achieve salvation without him. I can just fulfill the laws of my tribe and do these cultural boundary markers and look this way and act this way and I'm, I'm fine. And Jesus says, no, that's, that's not going to cut it. Jesus says he's the only way. You see the same thing with Paul throughout the New Testament. I'm going to throw out some texts here. Um, 2 Timothy 3, 2 Timothy 4, the entire book of Jude, uh, which is only two pages long, but the entire book of Jude, 1 John chapter 4, 2 Peter chapter 2, and Romans 16 verses 17 and 18. You see in all these places an opposition towards false teachers. So we're going to continue to be a friendly place, an inviting place. Hope if this is your first day, I haven't scared you to death. We'd love to have you back. We'd love to talk more with you. But, but the New Testament has this oppositional, angry, forceful pushback against people that would change the gospel. Because as I said, it's not gospel anymore then. It's not good news anymore. If it's Jesus alone, then it's good news. If we start adding stuff to it, then it's not good news any longer. And what's really amazing is Paul puts himself in that. Paul says, even if I or we, the apostolic team, all of us, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Paul's calling it down on himself. He's saying it's this serious. Paul says, my authority is not vested in my credentials and my apostle badge, right? It's vested in Jesus, it's if, I, if I switch teams, I'm not an apostle anymore. If me, Dave, standing up here, if I start to preach another message, I'm not a preacher of Christ anymore. I, I, I lose my credentials when I change the message. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's calling the condemnation down upon himself. He's saying even if an angel from heaven shows up, don't be impressed. If someone's glowing and scares, the, scares you to death, don't then start listening to him and say, oh, well, maybe there's a different way other than Jesus. Just let him be accursed. It's that serious. The message is that serious. 
Uh, what's fascinating is that uh, many other Jesus plus religions would say they got their message from an angel. So it's ironic, really. Um, uh, Mormonism. Mormonism says, yeah, Jesus is not an, enough. You've got to have the other book. You've got to have um, the magic underwear. You've got to have the, the rituals and the secret practices. And, and it's founded on a, an angel appearing to Joseph Smith. So how are we supposed to believe that Joseph Smith is right? Well, an angel appeared to him. Oh, okay. Paul says, let him be damned if he's preaching something other than Jesus and Jesus alone. Uh, Islam is the same way. How are we supposed to know that Muhammad was right? Well, an angel appeared. Paul says, let him be damned if, if I or another apostle or an angel from heaven preaches something else to you other than Jesus and Jesus alone. A Jehovah's Witnesses as well. Um, an angel is a part of that. We are to be people that are Bereans that, that test what we hear and sift through what we're told and what is proclaimed to us and stick to Jesus alone. If I start saying you're saved by knowing Jesus and giving 15% here, um, that, that's a really tempting one to tell you, right? We could buy some new stuff. We could finally rip out this pink carpet. Um, but I can't say that, right? Because it's just Jesus. Now, I want you to understand the flip side of this. There are some that say, um, it's Jesus alone, therefore God doesn't care what you do. And we'll see in Galatians that that's, that's not true either. God cares what you do, but he cares what you, what you do. Yeah, I'm switching my verb tenses. God cares what we do, but it's out of a heart that's overflowing with knowing that Jesus has saved us and died for sins, we can't, can't work our way to him. So he cares what we do. We've, we've got to do the right things, but be wary of people that say uh, the, the credentials, the, the way you get in is, is Jesus plus this other stuff. You, you come to God through Jesus, and then once you've come to him, once he's adopted you as his child, then he says, okay, you're my child. Now, now obey. Now do what's right because you know that I love you. Now trust me and begin living that out in the world because you know I've forgiven you for your sins. Now begin to do what's right because I love you, because you've entered into the family through Jesus. So we have all these passages that I gave you already, 2 Timothy, Jude, 1 John, 2 Peter, Romans, that make it very clear that we are to oppose false teaching, that we are to oppose any change to the gospel because it's serious, because it's a life and death situation. And because the gospel is the only thing that's really true. Francis Schaeffer used to say, true truth. It's the only thing that really makes sense of the world. I, I would encourage you even to some degree to study these other religions and just to ask the question, does anything else make sense of my internal desire for justice and my very real need for mercy? Does any other religion make sense of those two things? And very clearly, only Jesus makes sense of those two things. Generally, world religions focus on one of those or the other. But only Christianity says both of those are absolutely necessary and absolutely fulfilled through Jesus. Absolute justice fulfilled through his sacrificial death and resurrection. And mercy, a God who loves us and invites us into his family, fulfilled through Jesus' death and resurrection. It's the only news that is good. 
It's the only news that is good. So I'd encourage you to pursue it. I'd encourage you to study other things. Um, As I've done that, I've become only more and more convinced that Jesus is the only way, that he's the only thing that makes sense of this, that he's the only thing that can make sense of a world that's created glorious, yet fallen and broken, that we all want to see redeemed, but we don't know how to get it there. The story of Jesus is the only story that makes sense of all of this. The, The last thing that we see in verse 10 is that this is a secure gospel. This is a secure gospel. Verse 10, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Now, uh, Doug Moo is a commentator that, that points out that it should be obvious that he's not a man pleaser because he just said, you know, let everybody else go to hell. So obviously Paul doesn't struggle with people pleasing maybe to the degree that I do. But I think there's something deeper here than, than just his willingness to say hard things. There's this concept that Paul is getting at that if, if, if we're bound to Jesus because Jesus is our only hope, then Jesus ultimately holds on to our loyalty. We're absolutely secure in him because he loves us. He has given me life. I'm adopted into his family. I'm a child of the king now. So I'm absolutely free to not have to earn my identity or my security from, from what you or anyone else thinks of me. I'm absolutely set free from that. And for someone that does struggle with people pleasing, that's life-changing. That's revolutionary. I think everyone to some degree, it just comes out in different ways, struggles with pleasing men. We just wear it in different ways. And Paul's saying, I don't have to please men because I've pleased God through Christ. So it's settled. So that's what makes Paul this crazy person that says for, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's what makes him unstoppable. That's what makes him invincible. So that in Philippians 1, he says, this life I'm living now is for the purpose of fruitful labor for other people. And right before that, he said, but of course I'd rather be dead and in heaven. Yeah. Most of us are like, no, I'd rather live now and have my little heaven here. I don't want to die and go to heaven. I want to make heaven here now because I think this is my only shot. Paul says, I'm ready to go, but God's chosen for me to stay here and suffer for the purpose of others. So personally, how do I translate that? Personally, I, I, think, I think I've got 40 more years. Would I like to die and be entered into the perfect new creation, no sin, no pain? Would I like to be disease-free, conflict-free, in pure joy right now? Well, yeah. Yes. I, th- I think, though, God's going to leave me for another 40 years to decay slowly. <laughs> and I think the purpose of that time is for you. Now, I'm, I might get hit by a bus tomorrow. And if I do, I, I hope you know I'll, I'll be much happier than I am now. <laughs> but I think he's left me here. I think my purpose is to stay here and to, to die and disintegrate slowly with the rest of you for the, for the purpose of fruitful labor, to give away my, my molecules for everybody else. And so we should be, we should be following in the pattern of, of Paul in Philippians 1, who is following in the pattern of Jesus, who says his purpose for leaving the perfection of heaven and coming to earth is to die. To, to burn up his life for others. 
that's the New Testament doctrine of love. Love is, is not a romantic movie. Love is giving yourself for someone else. Guys, don't take that the wrong way. Sometimes sacrificial love means watching that romantic movie with your wife. Okay, I just had to say that. Throw that in for you, wives. But it's not always the ideal picture. It's, it's giving of yourself. It's giving yourself away. That's a pattern we're to follow. That's a pattern Paul was following. That's a pattern Jesus lived out for us. That's our good news. Our good news is Jesus. And so we're now bound to Jesus. We're secure now in Jesus. We're not trying to please other people. Am I now seeking the approval of man or God? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. Christ is my only hope. So I have a picture of an ID badge here, and it's purposefully empty because I want you to decide what your ID uh, is, what your identity is. What's your badge that you wear? Now, you can't, you can't freak out too much about this, right? As men, we just say, what do you do? I do this, I do that, right? So I'm not saying it's a sin. You can't ever tell people uh, what your vocation is anymore. But, but I want to ask you, if it, down deep, like when you stay up at night, are you still thinking about that? Or are you resting in Jesus? You're secure in Him. Do you have peace with your identity as a child of God? So is it okay to say other identities? Am I a Texan? Yes, I'm a Texan. Am I a preacher? Yes, I'm a preacher. Am I a husband? Yes, I'm a husband. We have, we have vocations, right? Um, we do things. God's called us to do that. But centrally, our identity is in the gospel. Centrally, our identity is in that Jesus gave his life for us and he's set us free from sin. We've been forgiven. So now we know that God is pleased with us through Christ. He loves us. He delights in us through Christ. So we're free to not please people anymore. I'm, I'm free to be a preacher or not be a preacher. I'm free to fulfill my hobbies or not fulfill my hobbies. I'm, I'm free to, to do the things I do day to day or not do them. But what's central is who Jesus is and what he's done for me through the gospel. So I have the security there and that I don't have to live up to other people's expectations. And so now as a husband, I'm a free husband. I can love my wife not to get something from her, to have her love me back in the right way, but I can love her because I'm loved by God. I can train my kids and say to them uh, happy things and hard things both because I'm secure in the gospel because my central identity is in Jesus. So I'm not parenting them from some kind of desperation and fear of if I screw this up, the world's going to end. And I'm not parenting them from some kind of fear of I've got to have their love and respect. I'm parenting them because God loved me first. God parented me first. He put me in his family, and that's my central identity. And so that I carry out my vocation as an expression of being loved as a child of God. So your ID badge should, should be that security in the gospel, the, the gospel centrality of Jesus for you. And then your vocation is an expression of that. It's a flavor of being a child of God. So if you're a soldier, you're a child of God that God's called to be a soldier. If you're a teacher, you're a child of God that God's gifted and called to teach. If, if you're a uh, butcher, baker, candlestick maker, right? Whatever you are, if you're an artist, whatever God's called you to do and equipped you to do and empowered you to do, that's not your identity. That's just something you're doing here. That's the fruitful labor. That's what you're using your time on this earth as you die slowly or quickly with the rest of us. That's what you're doing with your time. You're giving it out. You're loving others through that vocation as a child of God. 
So God gifts us in different ways. He prepares us in different ways. We have vocations. We have skills. We have secondary identities. But our primary identity is who we are in Christ. We're secure in him. And that's what Paul is saying here. A great way that Jesus says it in Matthew 10 is don't fear those who kill the body but can't kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Even the hairs of your head are numbered. So if you die tomorrow, it's not because God stopped loving you. It's because you fulfilled your purpose. Every day matters, and he wants to use you in this world as his child. You're his. You belong to him. Your life doesn't belong to you. It belongs to him. And he wants to use it. So make the moments count. Make the seconds count. We don't know how many we have. Trust that he loves you, that you're secure in him. You're not fulfilling some other identity. I want you to think about the secondary identities that we often throw into the mix here in the religious world. It's crazy. I mean, we have uh, contemporary singing at our church, and often people fall into thinking, well, I like contemporary singing, so that's what it means to really be an authentic believer, right? Uh, Is to sing faster songs or modern songs. Or you might fall in a more traditional camp. Well, I'm sophisticated, so I love old traditional music. And then we slip into our identity being in that sophistication. Or maybe you're really a great student in the Bible. You love to study. And your identity can drift from studying because you want to know Jesus more to studying because your identity is being that smart guy that studies. Our identity in religious circles can quickly drift from Jesus to the secondary expressions of how we walk with him and know him and try to obey him. So again, our our styles of worship, our styles of doing church together, our, our styles of living our life are secondary to our primary identity of loving Jesus. And when we love Jesus and pursue him, then he's going to work that gospel change in our hearts so that we'll actually be what Paul describes in Galatians 5, the kind of people that actually obey the Ten Commandments out of love because we actually believe that God is good and true and what he tells us is right. So then I'm going to begin loving people and obeying his commandments and being pure and living a moral life not to impress God or to impress other people around me but because I know that he loves me it's going to become an expression of that love for others as we wrap up I want you to just think about these things and and pray this to God we're handing out these study guides here they're at the front of the room in the back of the room there's a QR code if you know what that is in here um, to find this online what we want you to do is we want you to be talking about this. We want you to talk with someone else. We want you to just find a buddy, another Christian friend that you trust, uh, same gender I'd recommend, and just say, hey, I'm, I'm trying to sort through this. I mean, I, I know ultimately that my identity is in Jesus, but I think sometimes I struggle to find my identity in, uh, in being the best soldier in my unit or, or being the smart guy or being the lady with the great kids or, or whatever it is. And begin sharing that and, and praying through that with someone else. What are those secondary identities that we're struggling with? Why is it so important to keep the gospel central as, as the, the middle, as the center, as the foundation of our identity? Grab one of these and talk through it with someone else. If you talk about it on the dinner table, talk about it with your spouse. Grab a, a friend and pray with them through it. But we want to have a community where everyone's actually churning through the stuff. Where we're actually talking to other people. We're not just coming in and listening to it and then trying to forget it because it freaks us out. But we're talking through it with, with other people trying to let the word sink deeply into our lives.
Let me pray for us and then we'll, we'll wrap up with a final song together. God, we thank you for your love for us that you expressed in Jesus. And we confess together that we have turned from you and we've doubted you. And we've wanted to trust in ourselves. We've wanted to trust in the boundary markers of neighborhood and tribe and race and style and vocation, pleasure, sin. God, we confess that you are the only solution to this world. You're the only one that makes sense of of what we live in and what we see. And so we ask that you would help us to, to follow you and to trust you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.